Welcome to a community-supported and guest-produced edition of the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from The Al Franken Show, The Colbert Report, NPR's On Point, The Sam Cedar Show, The Rachel Maddow Show, NPR's All Things Considered, and a speech by Martin Luther King Jr. healthcare uh last night and leading up to the member andy they said that we the president really had to explain this thing yeah i mean it's a complicated bit of policy and he's using it to try to have this be a new domestic initiative that takes attention away from all the failed ones and all the failed foreign initiatives he's been engaged in and the challenge all the pundits said was he's gonna have to find a way to explain this sort of arcane health policy change clearly enough that people go okay I understand this is something I want. So he and all his high-priced speechwriters sat in a room in the State of the Union you work on for weeks, months even. They hammered out the language. They talked with all the policy advisors, and, and this is what they this came up with. Clear, this is the clear and concise discussion with the American people about what he wants to do. Okay, let's let's play this and, and, and see how, how you understand this. First, I propose a standard tax deduction for health insurance that will be like the standard tax deduction for dependents. Families with health insurance will pay no income on payroll tax or payroll taxes on $15,000 of their income. Single Americans with health insurance will pay no income or payroll taxes on $7,500 of their income. With this reform, more than 100 million men, women, and children who are now covered by employer-provided insurance will benefit from lower tax bills. At the same time, this reform will level the playing field for those who do not get health insurance through their job. For Americans who now purchase health insurance on their own, this proposal would mean a substantial tax savings. $4,500 for a family of four making $60,000 a year. And for the millions of other Americans who have no health insurance at all, This deduction would help put a basic private health insurance plan within their reach. Changing the tax code is a vital and necessary step to making health care affordable for more Americans. Okay, confused applause. I'm not sure what this plan is. (laughs) I, I, I don't know. I think that... It's a tax hike in part, right? Well, no, he's talking about tax cuts. But then he doesn't talk about how this is going to be paid for, which is by tax hikes on people with, quote, gold, gold-plated uh, health care plans that they get from their employers. That would be like ma- me. Yeah. But he didn't mention that. So also, if, if you're not pay- paying your... Uh, uh, I guess it's good to take it out of payroll taxes because a lot of this was giving a tax deduction to people who don't pay income taxes. So maybe this is good. I don't know. We gotta get out of this place. If it's the last thing we ever do. We gotta get out of this place. Girl, there's a better life for me and you. Good to have you with us, folks. Nation, I am pooped. Not only did I stand and applaud through the entire State of the Union last night, I kept applauding until just a couple of minutes ago. 
It was that good. This was the best State of the Union address Bush has given since last year's. And what made it so groundbreaking, I think, was all the new stuff we'd never heard from the president before. Like, uh, like a domestic agenda. Take his proposal to fix that whole health care mess with the only proven cure-all, tax breaks. And for the millions of other Americans who have no health insurance at all, this deduction would help put a basic private health insurance plan within their reach. It's simple. Most people who can't afford health insurance also are too poor to owe taxes. But if you give them a deduction from the taxes they don't owe, they can use the money they're not getting back from what they haven't given to buy the health care they can't afford. About it. What do you think? We've been joined from Washington by Marilyn Werber Serafini with the National Journal. I'm joined right now with me in the studio by Dr. Arnold Relman. He's Emeritus Professor of Medicine and Social Medicine at the Harvard Medical School. His forthcoming book is A Second Opinion, The Impending Collapse of the Healthcare System and How to Prevent It. He's former editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. Arnold Relman, thanks very much for being with us. It's a pleasure. And with us from Washington, Joseph Antos. He's healthcare and retirement policy expert at the American Enterprise Institute, a commissioner of the Maryland Health Services Cost Review Commission, formerly assistant director for health and human service re- uh, human resources at the Congressional Budget Office, author of Private Discounts, Public Subsidies. Joseph Santos, thank you for joining us. It's good to be here. Arnold Roman, first to you. Uh, we heard the president this week. We heard Philip Swagel, who was very instrumental in designing this new uh, tax sum benefits uh, plan that the president's rolling out. And there's more than that, but that seems to be getting the attention. What do you make of what the president has put on the table here? Is this the way forward, the solution? I'm afraid it isn't. I think it's all talk and no substance. And despite what our the enthusiastic governor of California says... He can the, feel the energy. The president's plan is dead on arrival because most people who understand health care know it's not going to help the basic problem. Why not? He's saying we're going to take some money from people who have more benefits than they need and uh, shift it to those who have less. Well, the basic problem is not that people can't afford to buy insurance. The basic problem is that insurance costs too much money, and it costs too much money because health care is too expensive. That's the essential problem. And until you figure out a way to make good health care affordable to everybody, you're wasting your time with all these tax plans. What about as an interim step? Okay, health care has been expensive for a long time and getting more expensive. We have not fixed that. In the meantime, 47 million don't have insurance. As a kind of a stopgap measure, does this look like... Uh, something worth pursuing to you? I'm not sure. I think that uh, the the I, I I think the California plan, like the Massachusetts plan, 
is going to go nowhere. Massachusetts' plan is coming apart now because it doesn't cover all costs. And I think the disappointment and the frustration that people are going to have may make it even harder to consider the real uh, solution, which is a nationally-based plan of insurance. So universal coverage, national Absolutely. plan. That's the only logical, sensible way to go. It's inevitable. There's the battle cry that uh, sort of drove into the sands in the 90s. Could it come back now or should it? Joseph Antos, how do you see President Bush's proposals this week and the initiatives being taken at the statehouse level? Uh, Bush's uh, proposal uh, doesn't claim to be the ultimate solution to a problem that uh, no one has been able to solve for the last uh, you know, 40 or 50 years. Uh, but it is a step, I think, in a reasonable direction. Uh, I, I take his proposal as saying that he's not going to sit on the sidelines when uh, Congress talks about health policy this year. Uh, he wants to actively promote reasonable solutions, but I think he would admit, and I think we should all admit, that we don't have the answer. We need to find the answer, and we need a lot of experimentation to do that. That's why the administration supports the states uh, in the efforts that they're taking. I, ag I agree with uh, Arnold Relman. Uh, that, uh, uh, you know, things don't look so good for the, these early plans for lots of reasons. Cost is, is a big one. Uh, and I agree with him also that uh, we need to do something about the basic cost of health care. That's where we need to start. The, the basic cost in health care, but there's a, a fundamental philosophical question here, it seems to me. Uh, Arnold Roman says we need national universal coverage. On the other hand, the Wall Street Journal editorial this week says now we're getting somewhere. Let's get government out of this. Let's privatize the whole thing. Joseph Antos, is, is that, I mean, you're at the American Enterprise Institute, conservative outfit. Uh, Philip Swagel used to be there. The president comes from a conservative point of view here. Uh, is the president saying, no, let's make it every man and woman for him and herself? Be on not your not own hook. Not, not at all. Uh, uh, in, indeed, uh, let's be realistic. The government's not getting out of health care. The private sector's not getting out of health care. Uh, we're in it together. Uh, I think what the president is saying that uh, tax policy in particular uh, should be adjusted so that it doesn't influence uh, health decision-making. Uh, at least as much as it does right now. Uh, he's also uh, faced with the same problem that the Democrats have on the Hill. There isn't a lot of money to spend. Uh, and so, uh, uh, of course, uh, if we had more money to spend, uh, we could see some expansion of uh, federal programs. Uh, but we could also see some expansion of subsidies to individuals to make their own decisions about what kind of health care they really want. Marilyn, we've seen unions in particular pushing back very strongly on this proposal, saying don't tax these benefits. We fought hard for them. Uh, you're going to start eating in to the fundamental path to insurance that most Americans follow, which is their employer covering them. Are, are, are opponents of this seeing that uh, historic system at risk here without a new you know, ship in sight to jump onto? Well, that, that's exactly right. And in fact, in the early days, uh, the, the few days uh, that President Bush um, started talking about his health care plan, even a few days before the State of the Union address, and those were the words that kept coming. Uh, those were the, the most critical words that kept coming was this is the death of the employer-based system. And there are you know, many millions of people who depend on that employer-based system. And uh, uh, they're concerned that if you take the if if it's the if if employers begin to drop coverage and or to slim their benefits because if they if employers are not getting 
a, a tax break or only getting a tax break up into a up to a certain point, that employers may start to offer slimmer benefits or get rid of insurance altogether. That leaves people uh, to the individual market, which uh, most people believe does not work very well, especially for sick people. So it's a long march here, Arnold Roman. How do you see it? Do, do you see the president's proposal if adopted? driving employers to cut back on health insurance uh, benefits or, or drop them entirely? And do you see that as a good or bad thing? Maybe we're on a long march. If that puts a lot of people out in the private system, uh, you, what, do you, do you think they'd ultimately start, uh, you know, marching in the streets for universal coverage because it's cold out there? It certainly is cold out there. I think the president's plan is dead on arrival, and I don't think it's worth talking about. It's clearly not going to go anywhere. Congress won't go will this not, way because why? Who's, who's going to push because back? Because everybody knows it's not going to deal with the problem. Mm-hmm. It's not going to work. And uh, the Mr. Antos, I'm glad that he agrees with many of the things that I said, uh, uh, but he did say one thing that uh, disturbs me. He said that the private sector is is part of the solution and must be, the public and the private sector. But I remind Mr. Antos and I remind the public that the private sector in health care means that they have to make a profit from health care. And they have to, and they have a huge overhead too. Which and they, I mean, they come right in and scoop what fifteen, twenty, twenty-five percent off the to top 20 of foot, uh, depending premiums. Depending on the private plan, there are hundreds of private plans. Mm-hmm. Most of them are investor-owned private companies. Naturally, they want to make a profit. They've got stockholders, and that profit and their tremendous overhead and business costs come right out of the health care dollar, and we're getting virtually nothing in return. The president says we get the best health care in the world in return. He said well, it uh, the, Tuesday night. That's nonsense. And anybody who knows anything about American health care, and I think most doctors like me know this, and most health policy experts know it, the American health care system at its technological best is the best in the world. Mm. If you're lucky enough to be able to afford uh, the terrific care that our best hospitals and our best specialists give, you get great care. But you have to be able to afford it. And American health care is bad because unlike like any other country, uh, advanced country in the world, we say, in essence, if you can afford it, you can get it. Was it but always if, this way, this a heavy profit motivation no. in, in the medical world when you got into the no, medical business? No, I, in my book, I, I, I tell, I've, I'm old enough and I've been around long enough mm. so that I saw the change occur before my eyes. When I started out in medicine, medicine was about taking care of patients. And every doctor and every hospital knew that if you took good care of patients and you were conscientious, there was enough work to be done. You could, you could, make out pretty well. Doctors, most doctors didn't expect to get very wealthy, but they expected to make a decent living, and so what, they did. So what drove the profit motive so high? Because uh, a number of things happened. One, uh, insurance came in, and insurance said, we'll pay your bill. Medicare and Medicaid said, we'll just pay your bill. And private insurers said, we'll pay your bill, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So that encouraged people to go into the healthcare business. And furthermore, Technology began to grow, and there were all sorts of expensive tests and expensive drugs and expensive procedures. And just by doing these things, even when they weren't necessary, doctors and hospitals could make a huge amount of money. It was a good business. And and patients are trained to want them, to want what's available. A lot of listeners want to come in. Let me just begin to bring them, if I may. Mary's calling from Iowa City, Iowa. Hi, Mary. You're on the air. Hi, 
Thanks, and it's good to have you back on in Iowa. You have the, the news that we here in Iowa need because we're selecting the next president in 08, and the two shows that let it, used to let us talk about things like this, they took them off the air. Hey, we're, we're right here with you, Mary. What do you think on health care? Well, the Bush plan is class warfare. It's pitting the middle class against the lower class and the working class. And the $15,000 quote, I think you had Barbara Aaron right on your show? Yes, earlier this week. Yes, and she said, I think that's the right, right person I'm quoting, that that's the, the amount that a person working at middle, you know, at a minimum wage who has a family, you know. Sure, it's what a lot of people family. make in a year, so if somebody's getting that just in health benefits or more than that, why not tax it to help out no, the, the low I income? Mean, when he makes that tax structure about what will be taxed and what will not be taxed. Now, the middle class is very stressed because they're making all the sacrifices for the war in Iraq. That that upper class, that elite class, has no stake in this except, you know, to control the law. Stern. He's the president of the Service Employees International Union, one of the most powerful unions in the country. He joins us live from Washington now to give us his take on the President's State of the Union address last night and on the blocking of the minimum wage increase, which took place in the United States Senate today. Andy Stern, it's good to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rachel. Um, I know that the number one resolution made by SEIU this year is to fix America's health care system. I'm, I have to say I was personally a little mystified by what the president proposed last night, but I'm fairly confident it's never going to become law anyway. How did you feel about that proposal? Well, you know, hey, I thought it was, you know, good that the president finally joined the rest of the country and, and appreciated that we need to fix our health care system, too. I thought, you know, that he appreciates that states need a little bit more financing uh, to even make some some steps forward. Uh, you know, but clearly his tax policy is is you know it's as if someone's in a ten foot hole and you throw him a four foot rope. It's really not going to work, and it's just sort of shifting responsibility. You know, rather than solving the problem, and you know the tax system probably needs to be changed as part of health care reform, but. We need a comprehensive not solution, a fundamental solution, and his was rather incremental. I've, I thought it was politically interesting that um, he chose to introduce one of his only new measures, and he, so he knew it would get a lot of attention. He chose to introduce something on health care while virtually assuring that it would never come to law. He never consulted with the Democratic leaders on health care in Congress about this. They predictably have responded by saying it's dead on arrival. But I wonder, politically, strategically, if his decision to put that in the speech indicates that he is finally starting to understand that the American people really do care about health care. And even if the solutions put forward aren't smart ones, it's at least politically savvy for politicians to be seen talking about the issue. Well, I think it's totally clear the winds of change in health care are blowing. You know, it started when Maryland passed a fair share bill when then, you know, Governor Romney, Governor Schwarzenegger proposed you know, universal health care in their states, mm-hmm. uh, 
Congressman Connor proposed a you know a single payer health care bill. Congressman uh, Senator Wyden talked about every American should have the same health care benefits as their members of Congress. The insurance industry has a universal plan. Uh, we in the Business Roundtable and ARP called for universal health care. And as usual, Washington's the last place that kind of gets the message mm-hmm. that American people are looking for change. And so, you know, I think the president gets it. I hope the Democratic Congress gets it. That people are not, you know, if if Republican governors can propose universal health care plans. It seems like our Congress should grab hold of this issue and solve probably the most major problem that most people face domestically, which is their one illness away from bankruptcy. Do you see, you mentioned the business roundtable there, do you see uh, corporate America um, taking a stand in favor of universal health care? I mean, certainly what happened last night, the proposal last night, was a very business-friendly proposal. I don't think it was a very um, patient-friendly proposal. I don't think it was very, I don't think it was a smart economic proposal for the country. But I wonder if you think that some leadership on this issue will come from business. I mean, I think we've we've seen two fundamentally different things. One is we've seen the insurance industry that really killed Healthcare reform in 1994 realize, you know, this situation actually threatens their existence if the system collapses. And it's, you know, every day we're one day closer to collapse. And you know, switch sides in some sense and propose universal healthcare. And I think we're now going to see CEOs and business groups appreciate that this is no longer just a moral question in America. It really is about America's competitiveness. It's about good American jobs. Mm-hmm. And American business can't be, you know, the only business on the face of the earth to put the price of health care and the cost of its products when its competitors don't. I mean, we now have not only a, a bad social problem, we have a bad economic problem. proposal that uh, that Bush uh, proposed, I guess. It was one of the most convoluted parts of his speech. I mean, it was clear to me he didn't even understand it. I mean, uh, it was as if uh, somebody had misplaced all the commas uh, in, in, in that the text of his speech when he got to that point. But uh, explain to us a little bit what he's proposing there. Well, uh, actually, part of the problem is that we're not sure. There were there was something added that wasn't in the previous descriptions. Uh, maybe we'll get to that. But it, so it's it's little. We're still not quite sure what it is. But the basic thing is, you know, first off, right now, um, if your employer pays health insurance premiums for you, those are not taxed, which is one of the things that that holds the to the extent that the health insurance based for unemployment is, is holding together. It's slowly disintegrating, but slowly. Uh, it's because of that tax advantage. Uh, what he's saying is two things. We're going to uh, provide an equivalent tax advantage for people buying insurance privately, uh, and we're also going to work. It's actually going to be changed. So it, the, the amount, this, this is actually kind of confusing, but the, the amount of the tax deduction you get doesn't, doesn't actually depend upon how much insurance you or your employer 
buy. Uh, it's going to be just a flat. If you have any insurance, you get a standard deduction, uh, which removes any incentive to have generous insurance, which is, in, in Bush's uh, worldview, that's a good thing. In the view of, of a lot of us, it's a bad thing. Um, it's all very convoluted, as, as you say. It's, it's, there's no clear diagnosis of what it is that we're trying to, what problem it is we're trying to solve here. As this, as this tax deduction thing, as I understand it, it essentially, not only does it not provide an incentive to give, to give an employee more health care, it actually provides an incentive, even if you're buying it personally, to actually get less health care that you Well, get. there's no longer any tax advantage to buying more. So as soon as you say, I have a health insurance plan, which could be that, you know, we will give you uh, a, uh, uh, we'll give you a box of chocolates if you die. I mean, that's, that, it, it really doesn't say anything about what the plan has to provide, that it be adequate, anything else. Uh, as soon as you say you got that, then you've got the tax deduction, uh, and there's no incentive at all left to, uh, to provide uh, a plan that actually provides decent coverage, which means that, that it's a big step back from the current system, which actually does, in fact, uh, provide some incentives for for decent uh, decent health care coverage. So, for the sake of argument, let's just say that the uh, uh, let's just pick an arbitrary number. The the the, the tax deduction you get is five thousand dollars. Whether or not you buy a health care plan that is uh, costs you fifteen dollars or That's right, fifteen thousand dollars, and right. you, and so, I mean, so realistically, what we're saying is that that uh, in fact, what we're we're imagining is that someone might buy a something which is really just the most Catastrophic insurance and only the most uh, extraordinary circumstances. You might get it for three thousand uh, dollars, but you'll get the seventy five hundred dollar deduction. And, and so, in that instance, essentially, what uh, what, the, what the the system uh, the, Bush is using the tax code to actually incentivize people to get less. Healthcare, because if you you spend less on your health care, you will still get that deduction, and you will actually benefit whatever it is. In that instance, it's uh, five, you know, four thousand dollars extra of tax deduction that you're not spending on health care. So it's really more of this right wing notion that the real problem with health care is not that not enough people have it or they don't have good enough health care. It's that people are using too much health care. Yeah, and you can actually make money if you're willing to be sick. Yes, the, the there there's two things. Uh, I mean, it, the, I, rather than than try to parse through the details, I think you want to think about what's the philosophy here. There's two things that that uh, that they don't like. Um, two two views in from the point of view of the Bushies and the people around them. One is the problem with our healthcare system is that people uh, consume too much of it. They have too much health insurance. Uh, and the second is that uh, they don't like anything that sort of smacks of people working together in groups. So they don't like employer-based. They don't like group health insurance. It should all be mano a mano. You should be out there buying your own policy. Uh, um, in, in past speeches, Bush has talked a lot about, you know, the trouble with health care is that people don't comparison shop the way they do when they're buying uh, uh, home appliances. So you should be buying health care the way you buy home appliances. Um, and the the problem with all that is, you know, aside from obviously I don't like these people, but the problem is that the everything we know says that the individual health insurance market is just doesn't work. It's uh, the insurance companies 
spend lots of money to screen out the people who actually need insurance, and the thing just basically ends up being uh, available, if at all, only to the people who, who need it least. Um, and we have a system that sort of kind of works. It's, it's got big holes in it, but at least it covers most people, which is held together with uh, chewing gum and bailing wire uh, through the current structure of tax incentives. And what Bush is basically saying is we're going to dismantle those incentives. We're going to uh, replace it with something which uh, is going to push towards my vision of a minimalist, uh, individualistic, atomistic, uh, uh, profit-based healthcare system. Uh, you know, it's all—it's—it's—it's it's, it's taking what's wrong with our system and, and exaggerating it, and taking the, the bits of it that work and and trying to take them apart. All right. Well, Paul Krugman, thank you so much uh, for uh, giving us a perspective on this uh, healthcare uh, proposal by George. things considered. I'm Lynn Neary. In Alabama, a college student who is so disabled that he can't move his body is taking on the state health care system. He's fighting a policy he says might force him to move into a nursing home. He wants the state to start a new program to pay for him to stay at home. That might seem unlikely at a time of high state budget deficits, but Nick Dupree just might win, as NPR's Joseph Shapiro reports. At the age of 20, Nick Dupree is a small man, barely five feet tall. He's propped up, belted into his motorized wheelchair. Behind the seat, there's a portable ventilator. That's the breathing machine that keeps Nick Dupree alive. The machine's whoosh punctuates his presence in the room. It's not easy to hear Dupree when he speaks. His voice is soft, weakened by his muscular dystrophy. But there's defiance in his words when he says he wants the same things in life as anybody else. I want a life. I just want a life. Like anyone else. Just like your life. Or anyone else's life. Dupree says his life is pretty good for now. He tries to make it as typical as he can. My life. Right now. Because I'm at home. With my family, I'm going to college. But when he goes to class, a nurse goes with him. That's because Dupree needs constant attention. If his breathing tube pops out, and it does happen, he could die if someone is not there to attach it. He can't move his own body. He can't move his legs or arms. But he does move one thumb and one index finger, enough for Dupree to control a computer. And from that computer, he's waged a battle to stay independent, possibly, he says, to save his own life. He's been trying to change an Alabama policy that would stop paying for the health care he depends on. With his computer, he sends email messages to politicians and policymakers. He's created his own website. He remembers when he started the Internet campaign he calls Nick's Crusade, down to the exact date in March, nearly two years ago. March 19th. 
Got out in the morning when I started this almost two years ago. When I started it, I started very small. Very small. And what started very small has gotten rather big. Dupree lives at home with his family. He's an A-minus student at nearby Spring Hill College in Mobile, Alabama. That's possible thanks to Medicaid, the state and federal health program for the poor. Alabama Medicaid pays for the nurse who takes Dupree to class. It pays for 16 hours of nursing care every day. That's expensive, but the federal government requires all states to provide such care to children. What happens when Nick Dupree turns 21 and becomes an adult is another matter. His 21st birthday is just days away, on February 23rd. And Alabama's policy has been to end such in-home care at age 21. Even though the good care Nick Dupree has gotten at home is a major reason he's lived so long. Dupree sits next to his mother, Ruth Belasco. He watches her with a steely, serious expression that rarely changes. His mother says her son should not be at risk simply because he's having a birthday. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's inhumane. Well, it's also inhumane. The state is sort of... Not more. <laughs> they're cutting people off. It's saying, there's no care. We'll just put this guy in a corner and hope for the best. Even with the nursing care the state provides during the day, Belasco covers the night shift. She's a single mother. She can't quit her job as a college art professor. She'd lose the insurance that pays Nick's other medical bills. Dupree knows that Alabama would pay for him to move into a nursing home. That's something he says he won't do. And besides, he says the nearest facility that would take someone on a ventilator is two states away, in Louisiana. Dupree and his mother have met others in Alabama who did turn 21. Their families faced a choice that, to Belasco, isn't much of a choice at all. Send the child to a nursing home and hope that if a ventilator tube comes loose, that an aide will be close by to hear the alarm go off. Or keep the person at home and let family members try to take on all of the exhausting, round-the-clock care. Well, some said we're going to try and figure out how to do this at home, and um, then some others went and died. Well, some died at home now. Right, and some died at home too. That, that, that's a horrible idea too, that after you've been awake for 48 hours and you can't stay awake anymore to watch your child, you fall asleep so heavily that you can't hear the alarm going off and your child dies. And that's a horrible idea too. With time running out before he turns 21, Dupree stepped up the Internet campaign. And today, Nick Dupree got some good news. Alabama Medicaid officials announced that they plan to start a new program, one that will continue in-home nursing care to people like Dupree once they turn 21. Mary Hayes Finch of Alabama Medicaid says the state will seek approval from Washington. Officials at the Federal Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services got Alabama's request today, and they say they will handle it with speed. Still, officials such as Finch give Nick Dupree only grudging credit. Certainly he's been very vocal and he's been very involved in the process, uh, and he's to be commended for that. We have been working on the project for about a year and a half, uh, trying to find an option that would provide care for him and others in his situation. It's been two years since Dupree started his crusade. So he isn't celebrating yet. It's not certain that a new program will be approved and running by his birthday, although federal and state officials clearly see that as their deadline. That's why Dupree's attorney is going forward with a lawsuit, 
A hearing is scheduled for tomorrow afternoon in federal court in Montgomery. At the same time, advocates in Washington will protest outside the White House. Details of the proposed program have not been made public, but officials say Dupree is likely to get about what he gets now, 16 hours a day of in-home nursing care. And the new program would cover someone else who matters to Dupree, his brother, Jamie. Jamie has the same disease and needs the same care. He's 18. That would relieve Ruth Belasco. Still, even with paid nurses, she'll always be the main caregiver for her disabled sons. And she knows other Alabama families who, even with a new program, won't be getting any help. A friend of ours who turned 21 last year, uh, there was a nurse caring for him, and at the stroke of midnight, she left when his birthday came. That man now depends upon shifts of volunteers, parents, family, and members of his church. People like him who've already turned 21 are not expected to get coverage under a new Alabama program. And that's why Dupree says Nick's crusade will keep going. I'm going to keep mining for everyone else. Keeping up my win. No one knows exactly how many people there are like Nick Dupree around the country. Most states provide more care than Alabama, but most states still leave people with less care than they need. Until Nick Dupree led his crusade, they were largely an unseen population. Joseph Shapiro, NPR News, Washington. There's a photo of Nick Dupree and more about his crusade on our website, npr.org. not to speak with Hanoi and the National Liberation Front, but rather to my fellow Americans. That is, at the outset, a very obvious and almost facile connection between the war in Vietnam and the struggle I and others have been waging in America. A few years ago, there was a shining moment in that struggle. It seemed as if there was a real promise of hope for the poor, both black and white, through the poverty program. There were experiments, hopes, new beginnings. Then came the build-up in Vietnam, and I watched this program broken and eviscerated, as if it was some idle political plaything of a society gone mad on war. And I knew that America would never invest the necessary funds or energies in rehabilitation of its poor so long as adventures like Vietnam continued to draw men and skills and money like some demonic destructive suction tube. So I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and to attack it as such. Perhaps a more tragic recognition of reality took place 
when it became clear to me that the war was doing far more than devastating the hopes of the poor at home. It was sending their sons and their brothers and their husbands to fight and to die in extraordinarily high proportions relative to the rest of the population. We were taking the black young men who had been crippled by our society and sending them 8,000 miles away to guarantee liberties in Southeast Asia, which they had not found in Southwest Georgia and East Harlem. So we have been repeatedly faced with the cruel irony of watching Negro and white boys on TV screens as they kill and die together for a nation that has been unable to seat them together in the same schools. And so we watch them in brutal solidarity, burning the huts of a poor village. But we realize that they would hardly live on the same block in Chicago. I could not be silent in the face of such cruel manipulation of the poor. My third reason moves to an even deeper level of awareness, for it grows out of my experience in the ghettos of the North over the last three years, especially the last three summers, as I have walked among the desperate, rejected, and angry young men. I have told them that Molotov cocktails and rifles would not solve their problems, I have tried to offer them my deepest compassion while maintaining my conviction that social change comes most meaningfully through nonviolent action. But they ask, and rightly so, what about Vietnam? They ask if our own nation wasn't using massive doses of violence to solve its problems, to bring about the changes it wanted. Their questions hit home, and I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. For the sake of those boys, for the sake of this government, for the sake of the hundreds of thousands trembling under our violence, I cannot be silent. So after a little bit over a year and just shy of about 200 episodes of this podcast, this episode, I think, is the one I'm most proud of, if for no, no other reason than because I simply had almost nothing to do with it. This show was entirely conceived of by one listener with the support of the Best of the Left community, and it was brought together, developed, produced, entirely by that listener. In fact, I, I think um, I think you might be familiar with his story. It might sound a little odd because you're thinking you haven't checked into the Best of the Left community 
how would you know this person who uh, who produced this show? And you know, and certainly I couldn't be talking to you specifically because how could I possibly know who is listening to my show? But let, let's just have a listen and see if maybe you recognize this. He does move one thumb and one index finger, enough for Dupree to control a computer. Apparently not just enough for him to control a computer, but to also edit together a, a great series of clips to be put together into an episode of The Best of the Left. Uh, Nick has been a, a, a very active member over at the Best of the Left community forums for a long time, and and it, it, it's really exciting that he decided to get involved at this point. I, I think after hearing the State of the Union speech and uh, the ridiculous new health care proposal, it just uh, it must, it must have lit just a little bit more fire underneath them and, and got him going. So what you just heard was the result of his efforts and essentially his efforts alone. I know there were some people who helped him gather these clips, but but I, I, I know those guys and... and they'll be more than happy to hand over all the credit to Nick. So uh, it's, it's definitely a pleasure to be able to add uh, a guest producer of the best of the left, as, as minor as that may be compared to his other accomplishments, but uh, as opposed to, um, or in addition to, running his own website and developing his own uh, campaign for better health care uh, for himself and others. Um, he, he took the time and, and wanted to do this, and I'm more than happy and overjoyed and extremely proud that, uh, that this happened the way it did, and so I just want to, you know, con- congratulate him and, and just let everyone know that I'm, I'm really happy about, about how this is going. If you want to uh, contact Nick, you can, uh, first of all, go to his website, nickdupree.blogspot.com. That'll be linked in the show notes of this episode, or uh, you can just go by the Best of the Left community, and if you post anything anywhere on there, you can sure as hell bet that he will see it, because he is all over that place. So, um, I definitely recommend you do that. It's obviously a very interesting story, something that, um, you know, I I am am certainly interested in, in hearing the outcome, and and certainly hope the best for him. So I certainly encourage you to go to bestoftheleftpodcast.com where you can get more details on this episode and others in the show notes, and as well as a way to contact me directly through the link at hippiesympathizer at gmail.com. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the border of Washington, D.C., yes, I've uh, I made it here. Uh, safe, sound, and in one piece. Um, this is Jay, and although my duties seem to be dwindling more and more, which I love, by the way, I, I do still host this crazy show, and I'll be talking to you very soon. Bitch burning on a shining shoe.